Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 19th of May, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Golden News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands. A lot to cover today, Mike. Uh, yes, we've got a lot to get through today. We're going to begin with tears. Are, are we going to be back in tears again? It's very hard to tell. Uh, we're getting mixed messages as usual. Could be medium, could be high could be, uh, well, this was what happened last year when they started to do this and rolled out uh, a high level of COVID alerts in various parts of the country. It could be very high. It could be very, 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 very high, Brian. Uh, we just don't know. Uh, but uh, the usual suspects are being rolled out to persuade us that we should uh, be in tears or maybe not because Neil Ferguson can't decide. He said the Indian variant could see the release from lockdown delayed. Uh, reverting to the old tier system won't work, he said. Uh, the data collected in the next two or three weeks will determine that. Whereas Boris was very much saying uh, India will be, was put on the red list before it was even a variant under investigation, trademark, let alone a variant of concern, trademark. Uh, but he went on to say, uh, so we took prompt action and we will continue to take very, very draconian action in respect of all variants. Um, so uh, look, there are three Indian variants. Now B1617 has had 368 confirmed cases so far. B1617.2 has had 1,313 confirmed cases so far. And B1617.3 has 11 confirmed cases so far. And on the basis of that, uh, they don't know whether or they're not saying, or they do know and they're not saying, uh, or they do know and uh, well, we'll find out in due course that we'll be back in some kind of local lockdown tier related system in the not too distant future. And the confusion all designed to stress people raise those anxiety levels because when people are stressed and anxious, they're more susceptible to doing as they're told. So that's why the confusion is being brought into the country. That's part of the government's behavioural insights team's psychological assault on the general public. Um, so in the meantime, the question is, what is going on in hospitals? Uh, and we reported a number of hospitals we now know are absolutely full. This is apparently a situation right across England at the very least. Uh, this again uh, is Plymouth Stereford Hospital. Our emergency department remains extremely busy with our staff caring for many acutely unwell patients. And they're trying to encourage people not to go into accident and emergency or into the hospital, but to think 111, hashtag think 111 and use the 111 call center uh, because that guarantees that you'll get no medical help um, but you won't be bothering yeah. uh, the hospitals either exactly mike we are talking about the hospital being totally full there's no description of of what uh, what is ailing the people coming to the hospital but um there's there's no question that the local hospital absolutely full trellisk hospital in cornwall in a similar position and we're getting reports from across the country um, so let's have a look at a couple of emails that have been come in. Uh, Hi, I'm a nurse in Derford Hospital. I haven't watched today's column news, but my cousin messaged me about uh, you saying that you wanted information about why the hospital is so busy. Uh, a critical incident was declared today at 10 a.m. This was on uh, Monday afternoon that I received this email, meaning that the hospital was at full capacity, not unusual in itself. It happens often during the winter flu season when we used to have flu, uh, but in May it is unusual. Uh, and the email goes on to say, interesting, during COVID, we had many empty beds. Uh, there's no obvious reason for this increase in admissions. I looked at the computer and the wards are mostly full of elderly people. Uh, we can't see what they're in with. Uh, there's a theory that because GPs are so inaccessible, uh, people are going to A&E. 
but if it were minor problems, they wouldn't be admitted, so the hospital wouldn't be full. Something isn't right. Uh, and the person went on to say, I did go through, it did go through my mind that the vaccine injuries were starting to present, but there's no way of finding this out. Uh, I just know that the stroke and respiratory wards are full up, as is everywhere else in the hospital. So that was the first email we received on Monday. And then another one came in yesterday, uh, which said this. Uh, you mentioned about England GPs not seeing patients. I was on a call with a senior manager who oversees GP practices, and he informed me that GPs are not seeing patients as it all boils down to money. He said they're not getting paid until at least 90% of the registered patient population receive the COVID vaccine. Uh, and the email goes on to say, as a result, non-COVID patients are left deteriorating and then turning up to A&E worse off, hence the increase in A&E attendances recently. Now, uh, we don't have any uh, definitive evidence to uh, back that statement up. I've no reason to disbelieve the person who sent me the, uh, the message at all. I believe that telephone conversation happened. Uh, but what I mean is we don't have any paperwork that we can put in front of you that, to, to evidence that statement. Um, and so I'm going to say to, to people watching this program today, if you do have some information about this and can uh, offer some uh, foundation to that, that would be very much appreciated. Yeah, but the key point is nobody is asking the questions of what is wrong with these people. If the hospitals are at maximum capacity, then why are the people being admitted to the hospital? What are their medical conditions? This is not being investigated by the local public health officials. It's clearly not being investigated by MHRA that's supposed to be collecting the data on vaccine adverse reactions. So a wall of silence at the moment, Mike, uh, even though the hospitals are full. Um, Alex, welcome to the programme. What were your thoughts? That email there should be read in concert with a listening to the latest James Dellingpole interview, Dellingpod interview 177. Uh, he interviews a GP's receptionist in the north of England who goes by the pseudonym Nina with a disguised voice. And she says that she has to blow the whistle uh, because the GPs that she works for disgust her because they have their feet up on the desks. So little work do they have to do. Uh, it seems to make similar claims about uh, not seeing patients because the money's rolling in uh, despite or even precisely because patients are not being seen right now. That Dellingpole interview is particularly shocking uh, because the receptionist says that she knows of thousands of adverse vaccine reactions that she's personally dealt with as the practice receptionist, of which one, to her knowledge, has ended up on the yellow card reporting system. OK, thank you very much for that. Now, uh, let's just... Uh... Uh, look at what the actual situation is or what the statistics are saying about hospital daily occupancy. Now, this is the uh, uh, National Health Service statistics from the 2nd of April 2020 until the 4th of February 2021. And this graph is extremely interesting for a number of reasons. First of all, uh, you will see that between June and September, there is no dip in hospital uh, admissions. That's despite the dip in the number of cases that took place in the summer of last year and also the dip in the number of deaths that took place in the summer of last year. But the number of admissions in the hospitals continued to rise. So were those COVID cases? No. Uh, what were they? Uh, if we come through into the winter of 2020, we start to see that the uh, number of uh, admissions is leveling off November and December time, uh, coming very close to the 120,000 mark. And that's very close to the total number of beds available in England. So that's between April and February. Um, and the reason that we are uh, showing that particular date range is because the more recent uh, spreadsheets of data provided by the National Health Service no longer give this historical data anymore. They give several weeks only. 
So here's the latest information showing April until May. This is 7th of April 2021 until the 5th of May 2021. And you can see that uh, hospitals across England are absolutely full to breaking point because this is pretty much the maximum level of patients that they can, of beds that they have and the patients that they can take. Um, we have no mention of this in the mainstream press at the moment, no explanation for what uh, problems these people are facing, other than the statement from uh, the Derriford authorities that these are people experiencing acute problems um, and, uh, and also the evidence of the nurse from Derriford saying uh, that these are mostly elderly people. So um, we need to understand exactly what's going on here. Where is the mainstream press? Well, we know that the BBC simply doesn't report on anything it regards as not the government's line. This, this is very clear now, Mike. So we, we shouldn't expect anything from the BBC. And of course, we're now seeing other national press, the Independent and the Mail, attacking anybody who dares question anything about the vaccination policy. So at the moment, we've got effectively a, a blackout in press and media in the UK. Yes. Um, so, Alex, what's going on in German hospitals then? This is an interview in Die Welt, roughly equivalent to the Daily Telegraph, uh, with a medical person and health economist named Matthias Schrapper. Uh, the headline translates as odd and inexplicable things are happening at German intensive care units. And the caption below the photograph, uh, the photograph indicating uh, a, a hospital trying to balance the, the money with the number of beds available. The caption underneath is saying, could it be that artificial shortages are being created? That's a, a very free translation of, of the caption. Now, Matthias Schrapper is uh, talking about uh, the um, findings of some private volunteers who've put a website together, which you can see on the next slide, uh, that actually there has been no shortage uh, of uh, beds per se, but a shortage in staff uh, is, is uh, the problem. So the info platform Corona is the site, the URL is on screen. You can see the, um, the uh, top uh, dark blue line is the number of uh, ICU beds available with a sudden vertical shoot up when Germany created a reserve to cope with COVID. Uh, the green line is bed occupancy. The slightly dwindling blue line, light blue line is, uh, is available free beds. And the, uh, the purple is sh staff shortages. So um, Matthias Schrapper and others who are putting together this, it's a group of authors who put this together on corona-netzwerk.info are suggesting that some kind of subsidy fraud is at the root of this. We should, of course, bear in mind that in Germany, as elsewhere, um, the claim in March 2020, when all this kicked off in Europe, was we had to save hospital beds. Now, I have interpreted for uh, German and uh, non-German um, medical overseers and planners who say in private uh, that there is a problem with too many intensive care beds. This has to be standardised. And I am aware from other translation jobs I've done that German hospitals at a high level do in engage in this kind of fraud for various reasons, some of which they say is standing up for their patients. So it is worth considering in context and German hospitals are not above this. Um, OK, thanks, Alex. Um, and uh, well, we move on to the story of, uh, of Sean. Um, just... Uh, Give us an overview of what Sean's position is. Sean is a very uh, friendly and solid man who's recently been in touch with me, uh, whose mother has dementia and she's in North London. And she, uh, as you can read on screen here, is a retired liver transplant nurse. I won't get into Sean's litany of very well-founded complaints against the 
Clinical Commissioning Group for North London, that is North Central London. The CCG is the latest of the completely of the constantly chopping and changing outfits in the British National Health Service that actually commission the care on behalf of people's family doctors or general practitioners. Sean's mother says in lucid moments that she's previously had adverse reactions to vaccines. Uh, the complaints relate to uh, the usual thing that you get often in London of, of uh, carers being absolutely shoddy when they come to give the home care and threatening and violent in some cases. Uh, nasty stuff that we won't get into. But anyway, uh, one of these home carers dropped into conversation, possibly all because of some kind of uh, spook channel that they're, they're involved in. Who knows? Uh, how do you feel about getting your mother jabbed for COVID? And uh, Sean said off the cuff, well, I'd sooner blow my head off than have that happen. Uh, what happened next is that Jane Mitchell Riley, who at the North Central London Clinical Commissioning Group is, she's formerly a private nurse for a London hospital. Uh, she's now in a, a position at the uh, CCG in North London, wrote to him and said, I'm very concerned that you've said you would shoot yourself and your mother. So she's pretending she doesn't know the idiom. We take this incredibly serious, Sean, not managing to spell Sean correctly. Therefore, I have asked for the police to carry out a welfare check on you both today. I would do this for all of the clients if I heard this being threatened. So she's pretending that this was a threat, of course. I know, Sean, says Jane Mitchell Riley, it's a frightening time for many people and their families in this COVID new world. She adds, I will re kindly request that your new clinical health commissioning case manager, so for those lost in the acronyms, and this is the British National Health Service, and particularly the bit that on behalf of people's family doctors says, get this lady a jab. I will uh, request that the new case manager liaises with your mother's GP in terms on, that should be of, how strongly you feel in terms of anti-COVID stance. I have requested your home carer to raise a safeguard today in terms of what is happening at home. And I have also requested that a social worker becomes involved, she adds. We all want to ensure that you and your mother are protected and well supported. And in signing off, she says, you're sincerely clinical lead nurse, continuing healthcare, and she's also independent best interest assessor. Jane Mitchell Riley, North Central London Clinical Commissioning Group. Now, Sean has his head screwed on, so he decided that the thing to do would be to get some witnesses. Uh, so one of them is a friend and neighbour who's a postman. Uh, another is uh, a hotelier, I think a hotel manager, in fact. Uh, a third is a legal advisor. And the fourth behind the camera is actually a BBC cameraman to record uh, a witness statement in one of his mother's more lucid moments, being careful not to lead the questioning so that it would be more difficult for the clinical commissioning group afterwards to claim that if your mother was still compost mentor, she would want to be protected from the virus. So here's the clip of that. And uh, I think this will provide many people who are worried about vulnerable relatives in this situation with food for thought about how to document their relatives wishes. Uh, I'm Sean. I'm the son of my mother. I look after I'm a full time carer. Hi, I'm Ingrid. I, I work in hotels. Okay. My name is Edward Lowe. I'm the director of the Legal Advice Network. I'm Glenn. I'm a neighbour friend of Sean's mum. Okay, and uh, on camera here is Paul Watkin, um, a friend of Sean. I've known him for many, many years, and I'm a cameraman by trade. Okay, mum, they come, they come to see you because I need to ask you some questions. Okay, mum, you know, there's there, there's... They've been talking about a virus that's going around killing people. Do you know about this? Yeah. How do you know about this? Yeah. Right. Now, they said there's a vaccine that can help people. Oh. 
uh, and prevent them getting worse mm. from this virus. But they're, they're also saying that there's possibility that of side effects mm. that can affect people. Some people might get affected by this. Mm. Some people might not. Are you willing to have a vaccine? No. Why not? I don't want anything to interfere in my body. Are you sure about this? Mm. Yeah, 100% sure. You don't want no vaccine? No. Okay. Thank you, Mum. Thank you. So there is a suggestion for people as to what to do before uh, you get told that if your elderly relative or other vulnerable relative uh, isn't jabbed with your permission, then you don't care for them. Um, and uh, is this yours, this, uh, this next? This, yes, no. this is a, a lead on from that. Sorry, this is, this is mine. Uh, yes. Um, surprisingly, YouTube hasn't taken this down. Uh, Joel Smalley, or Smalley, has put together an interesting uh, infographic, which I've sped up to double time because it's nearly six minutes in full, uh, entitled Impact of COVID Vaccinations on Mortality. And you can see from the still here, I've chosen Scotland as the still, uh, if you tap that again. Um, what's going on with these. So for each of these figures, uh, we have the red line is incidence of COVID cases. The protracted dotted red line is the trend you would extrapolate from the cases at the moment when the jabs began. And the jabs are the blue line uh, denoted with a syringe at the end as well. And right, the sorry, sorry Alex, just to this. clarify that, the, the, the blue line is deaths, uh, deaths uh, attributed to vaccinations, is that right? Or at least Correct. deaths yes, that have happened the, the, the after three. the vaccination program began? Yes, it is mortality, not incidence of COVID. It's COVID mortality figures per country, my apologies. Yes. And of course, uh, any country in which the blue line goes up, particularly up sharply rather than down when the jabbing begins is suspect. So let's have a look at at least some of the jurisdictions uh, and their statistics that Joel Smalley has put together. So we see a mixture of uh, most of the Latin American countries are on here. Pretty much all the Europe and uh, near East and Central Asia countries, quite a lot of Asian countries too. Uh, now, it's fair to say that not every single country has got a really shocking or tell-all uh, graph. We're not trying to simplify uh, these the, the data more than the, the, the graphics allow. But you can see that there is a fair number, about one in three of the countries involved, where we get a fairly sharp rise in COVID deaths after the jabbing procedure begins. There are some where the two rates track each other, the jabbed and extrapolated what would have happened without a jab, number of deaths supposedly uh, relating to COVID. Uh, they are fairly much in tandem for some, but there's quite a few others where there is a sharp increase. And notably, I can't see a single country on any continent here whose statistics show that fewer people die with a COVID death registration after the jabbing procedure begins. So we'll continue to let this run a bit. I don't know whether Brian or you have got any observations on what you're seeing while it's running. Well, well, what, what strikes me about it, Alex, first of all, is that at the very least, you could say that, that, that this data uh, would justify some kind of investigation into what's going on. And, and of course, we're not getting any investigation into what's going on. And I was, I was just looking at uh, previous uh, incidents where vaccines were withdrawn or, or at least suspended until there was an investigation done. And there are many of them. Uh, and it's pretty clear that in previous uh, vaccination programs, where there was this type of, of situation happening, it was just expected that, that, that there would be a suspension at the very least and investigation carried out. In some cases, the CDC or the uh, MHRA or whoever, whoever it was, was saying quite clearly that uh, the, there was no 
demonstrable link between the vaccination and the and the event. But nonetheless, there would seem to be the precautionary principle was taken into account, and that seems to have been abandoned at this stage. Well, abandoned. Yes. Sorry, I'll, I'll just add that, of course, in the UK, the MHRA, the organisation responsible for the safety of medication, is not investigating its own yellow data on vaccine adverse effects. So why does it take the UK column to put out this data and start to warn the, the uh, general public? We are saying there needs to be checks on what we're showing here, but these checks should be done by the British government and the safety agents of the British government. Uh, but it's taken the UK column to do this. So a number of interesting questions, Mike. Yes. Um, OK, Alex, uh, that takes us where to, to the Netherlands again. Back here to the Netherlands, simply to update viewers uh, briefly on what is happening with uh, anti-lockdown protests in the Netherlands. Quite a lot of footage has been shared uh, in the free media uh, about police violence, some of it quite shocking uh, in the Netherlands, in the eastern city of Arnhem and in the main protest centres of the Utrecht and the Hague. But Onrecht TV is reporting Wijnand Schippers, who is a, a musician of a comedic bent, um, is, is leading a protest which happened uh, in the Hague on Monday. This is one of uh, several clips that are coming through showing that there's a good nature that divide to the protest now. Uh, reportedly, police are hugging the protesters uh, in some of the Dutch venues now, which is a complete turnaround from a couple of weeks ago. So here we're going to listen to Mr. Schippers uh, playing a 30-second clip uh, of a dit ditty he's written, which loosely translates as, I had nothing against the police until they started trampling on the constitution, but it's not too late for them to think again. Politie was mijn beste kameraad. Met de nadruk op was. De politie was mijn beste kameraad. So you can see the good nature coming out there and the slouchiness of the police, you know, the kind of move along there. Uh, response to, to the to the go slow protest, but uh, they don't seem unduly fussed. Um, now, something else that the Dutch have been good at recently is making uh, a documentary available by the Austrian microbiologist Martin Hardich, which has been quite hard to get. So, Black Box TV, as they call themselves, uh, have got uh, the, of course the titles in Dutch here, which is the the most deleted documentary of the of our, of our times, uh, called uh, which is in the original German called Corona auf Suche nach die Wahrheit. Uh, in Search of the Truth. Uh, but what they've done here is they have subtitled in both Dutch and English the original German, which is quite hard to get, uh, of Dr. Hardich in an hour and a half, uh, talking to a number of people in different countries who have looked at the overall COVID uh, statistics, some of whom are on the, or all of his interviews on screen at the moment. He spent several months doing that. For example, the second in the list there, Professor Michael Levitt, uh, South African uh, Israeli uh, Nobel Prize winner for chemistry, actually, um, who is at Stanford, the same institution as John Ioannidis, who, of course, is well known for questioning the immunological issues around COVID at the moment. So we'll see a couple of stills of the English subtitles that are available on Black Box TV, 
of Professor Levitt talking to Dr. Hardich. And uh, it's particularly his uh, repulsion uh, or revulsion at what, uh, what lack of response he got from Britain that I've put on screen. He realised after number crunching the Diamond Princess cruise ship data, of course, a lot of people talk about that as an early indicator of which demographics would die at what rates from COVID. He said that uh, with, the, with the hard data in from the Diamond Princess, uh, that most people would actually overcome it with their immunity. That meant that the mortality estimates for the UK and US, these are of course imperial uh, figures largely, um, were overestimated by an order of magnitude, a factor of 10. And he goes on to say that he wished to alert, this is a full year ago now, uh, the British uh, to that. So he talks, tried to email as many scientists as he could, but rather wryly, he says that nobody in Britain seems to read emails. So the next still is him throwing his hands up in the air and saying most Brits don't seem to read their emails. And I'm afraid a lot of uh, doctors and uh, medical researchers from other Western countries starting to say that the British are particularly sloppy in this regard now with ho uh, hospital um, standards as well generally. It's, it's something of a national embarrassment that's growing here uh, that nobody got back to him. Uh, but if people want to look at the zoom in uh, that we've put together here, if you go to that Black Box TV page, as always, a few hours after upload, you can go down to the links below the, the news and find the link. Uh, if you go to the CC standing for closed caption uh, part of the bottom of the video page, you can then select English subtitles uh, because it's an embedded rumble video in there. Now this uh, takes us on also to, you, you were going to say something? Yeah, Alex, I was just going to interject there with the fact that it's become very clear to the UK column when we are trying to contact organisations, um, they still have a web page, but simply they're no longer, they are no longer functioning as a proper organisation. So try and speak to the MHRA, it's impossible. Try and speak to the BBC, virtually impossible. Try and talk to elements of the NHS, impossible. So we, we now see that the, these organisations have been hollowed out. They're still there, they still exist, but certainly there's no interaction with the public. There's no, no interaction with the press or the media in many cases. Um, so the country is hollowed out at the moment. And I think we shouldn't underestimate that this is the situation, that uh, the organisations appear to be there, but actually they're no longer functioning. Mm. Uh, so that brings us to uh, Dr. Bhakti, uh, Alex. It does. Dr. Sukarit Bhakti, originally from Thailand, uh, is in Kiel in northern Germany and is a retired distinguished immunologist. He himself would claim that Dr. John Ioannidis at, Berk at Stanford uh, is um, a greater authority than he who's on the same page as him regarding the immunological dangers of the COVID jabs. Here, the Daily Expose has um, one of an increasing number of English language interviews that Dr. Bhakti does. He's impeccable in his English. He went to school in Britain and um, He's coming out with uh, quite strong language here. Uh, so he's telling the Daily Expose that parents are willingly allowing their children to be killed if they have allow them to have the COVID vaccine. And uh, you can see, in, so you can freeze the frames and, and, and read some of these highlights. But he's talking about, uh, well, he's using words like idiots uh, and stupid uh, to describe uh, specifically uh, actually, some of the people at Imperial College, Neil Ferguson, who have been behind the modelling that, that Professor Levitt was talking about to Dr. Hardich. And on the next slide, there's a little yeah, more. But he, sorry, just uh, before we move on, he's also having a go at uh, uh, this, the vaccines minister, uh, Nadeem Sahawi. 
Yes, that, that he knows that Britain has a vaccines minister uh, when he, he's in, in Germany is quite something. And for him to you know, have come up with this strong language suggests to me that Dr. Bakhti has been particularly nonplussed or, or worse at uh, what, um, that, 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 what Dr. Mr. Zahawi, a, a silly mistake, but he's not a doctor at all, but Mr. Zahawi, the vaccines minister, has been saying. So if we look at uh, more of the stills of the, the interview, uh, we can see that he's... Uh, uh, talking about the uh, particular problem with uh, cerebral uh, thrombosis, cere uh, cerebral thrombosis, so blood clots in the brain, um, which is an extremely uh, vanishingly rare problem for most kinds of patients to have. And Dr. Bakti was tearing his hair out because he could see the characteristic um, indicators of that, such as the shakes that people were getting after the jabs. Um, and there again, it's a bit small for me to read, but perhaps you want to read the bottom paragraph there. Well, he's, he's saying your stupid government, Neil Ferguson, who has no idea what's going on in medicine, never studied anything uh, that would allow him to. Why don't people listen to doctors? Because they're corrupt. Science is corrupt and the scientists are corrupt. So that's really pretty strong. It is, and uh, he's got even a moral and national thing to say that the last uh, little extract that I've put up from that interview is, I went to a British school and was taught the meaning of honesty and courage, and you have lost all of those things. You have lost everything. The British are following in the past and present footsteps of the Germans. How absolutely shameful. Don't you have any pride? And in uh, other interviews, such as uh, the one I've taken a still from on the next slide, which was uh, talking to an Austrian interviewer about half a year ago, uh, it, just, just for reference, the still here is him showing um, the part of the, the German criminal code, uh, which uh, uh, in his argument prohibits uh, the use of menaces such as fines to make people do things. In his argument, that would include forcing them to wear unnecessary masks. Um, in, in, in talking to the interviewer in question there from Austria, he was uh, making similar points. He was saying uh, when he was asked why Britain, France, uh, Spain and Italy were the only countries with excess mortality in hospitals uh, at the at the time in, in question a year ago that, that's in, informative in people's minds for the COVID crisis, he says, well, let's be brutally honest. Those are four countries that have sloppy ho hospital standards. And uh, that's, that's, you know, he's lumping us in with, uh, you know, what many people would consider some of the worst countries in Western Europe for hospital standards. And uh, I'm afraid that uh, he's got a leg to stand on there. He's also, it's only in German so far, despite the English title, he's come up with a new book in German with his wife, Dr. Karina Rice, Corona Unmasked. So German readers should get hold of that because it's, uh, it's not that thick. And it's a uh, a fairly good summary of uh, much of the current state of knowledge um, and I'm sure that that will be coming out in this translation soon. Now uh, crucially Dr Bakhti uh, is wanting to get this out to concerned family doctors and other treating doctors. Um, if you're wondering what you can do uh, to get some evidentiary basis to your concerns about the current Covid jabs, he's saying that you should run a D-dimer test D-D-I-M-E-R. Uh, these are protein fragments indicating that a clot has probably taken place in the blood. Run one of these tests on patients before and again five to seven days after the administration of one of these jabs on your patients. And if you find that a sizable minority of your patients have elevated D-dimer values after the jab, that would be admissible in court, the big thing which is the thrust, the thrust of rhinofilmic and others now, admissibility in court, as prima facie indicating that the causation of the thrombosis 
is actually the jab that was administered. That is the current evidentiary bottleneck. Uh, I'm aware that in countries like Britain, if you're in the public healthcare system, your managers will say, why are you wanting to run a D-dimer test? You may have to be creative uh, about that. But that's the evidentiary standard in question. Uh, obviously, we're not doctors, but WebMD uh, has, uh, you can freeze the screen to have a look at it a little, some basic information for patients about what a D-dimer test is, when it is uh, administered, whether it is risky, hint no. And on the next slide, a little more detail uh, just about that and uh, of course making plain in the last uh, screenshot there that there are other reasons besides thrombosis uh, why there might be elevated D-dimer values as always in medicine and law there are exceptions to everything but this is good prima facie evidence that I think quite a lot of treating doctors uh, ought to be coming up with and while we're on Dr Bakti who uh, is uh, a native of Thailand who left many years ago uh, Thailand now has a province Buriram whose governor has uh, even though these are still experimental and emergency youth authorization jabs all over the world he's decided that he's going to send people door to door around his province um, making sure that people fill in a health questionnaire so if you tap that again there's a little more detail uh, a health questionnaire will uh, in a statistical and non-medical way decide whether they are high middle or low risk it would seem uh, this has to be filled in by the end of this month and uh, when health officials, uh, presumably not all qualified doctors, or officials from the disease control department, so there you are, civil servants, decide that you're in the box as high risk, computer says no, then you will get a jab order. And if you refuse your jab order, that will be a criminal offence. You'll be fined 10,000 baht or jailed uh, for that. So we are actually seeing um, you know, people taking uh, pretty... Uh, unlawful action in the extreme now, comparable with the troops on the streets of Dallas going around the young clubbers now saying, hey bud, want a jab, with no indication that they're registering patients to uh, to batches or doing any kind of informed percent consent procedure. Mm. Now some more positive news, and there'll be a lot more about this in extra time for our subscribers because people are asking what about legal solutions to this mess that we're in and this this rank unlawfulness. Well, here is a little taster of something we'll be discussing a lot more in extra time about legal solutions. Uh, Pilatus Today, a paper for central Switzerland, reports that uh, a group of concerned citizens and, of course, and in fact, five organizations, including the Swiss Friends of the Constitution, have indicted Martin Ackerman the head of the Swiss equivalent of SAGE. In Switzerland, they call it the COVID-19 Science Task Force. In the Netherlands, we call it the uh, um, Outbreak Management Team. The, these are a little more honest titles than SAGE. They're about managing the population. And if you uh, tap the next slide, you'll see some of the detail of the um, criminal and unlawful intimidation of the population that they are charging Mr. Ackerman with. It involves repeated bogus, bogus prognoses, systematic manipulation of intensive care bed data, comparable with the German piece that we reported on a moment ago, false pronouncements on hospitalization rates and death rates, and they accuse him of constantly changing recommendations on what measures to, in, uh, to enforce on the population, just com compared, just uh, according to what would suit the narrative best at the, uh, the moment in question. So even though ultimately we're going to need uh, people's systems of law uh, to deal with this and more about that in extra time, there's an indication that in some countries, uh, even the mainstream law uh, forums are finding ways of dealing with this. And, and Alex, really good to see that the professional, the professionalism of many of the reports coming in and the amount of professional work to, to put evidence together to show people what they can do in a legal sense, all of that is growing and the quality is growing. It's very obvious to see that. Okay. It certainly is. Yeah, thank okay. you.
Well, we should now have a clip of uh, a very large vaccine centre in Manchester. Uh, we were provided with this clip um, a couple of days ago. It's been heavily edited to get it down to a short clip for UK Column News. The initial part is really visual in that it's showing the walk into the centre itself. But if you will stay engaged with the video, you will then start to hear uh, the person attending being asked questions and also some talk about safety. This is only a very small clip for the news. We will make sure the full clip, which is about 13, 13 minutes, a little bit over, goes up on the UK Column website because you will then be able to hear further discussion around the safety or the so-called safety of the vaccines. Let's have a look at what one of these centres looks like. Thank you very much. Uh, it's got busier since we started introducing second vaccines. Have the AstraZeneca one. 
it's below 39. You shouldn't be, you're not giving the AstraZeneca if you're under 39. Um, and also, it depends on my clinical assessment on you. Like, there's, nothing, there's no risk factor. So, um, yes, um, once you've had it, this information on here, just make sure you read it because it's in relation to the blood clots. Although it's extremely rare to keep you safe, they've put on here the symptoms of a blood clot. So any of those symptoms, you need medical attention. It's about four in a million patients that have had these blood clots. So it's extremely rare. Okay. Any more questions? Well, there we are. Breaks in the audio during the video were the cutout of the responses from the uh, individual to make sure their identity was protected. But it's a very much fingers crossed process. Um, nothing to worry about. There have been some uh, blood clot problems. We'll give you the information on the vaccines after you've been vaccinated. And um, well, you shouldn't really have any problem at all. Now, in the full clip, which I say we will get up on the UK Column website, you'll be able to hear the person asking more questions around the safety of the vaccine. And you can hear the responses of the team. The particular person who attended decided uh, towards the end of the clip that they weren't going to stay any longer. and They certainly weren't going to have a vaccine, so they left the facility. Alex. Again, this should be taken in concert with other UK Column information. People should get used to finding the news direct from ukcolumn.org and using the search facility, the magnifying uh, glass icon. In this particular case, uh, you have just put up a good man down the fatal reality of vaccine adverse reactions. Uh, an interview with two sisters in Manchester of um, daughters of a, of a very healthy man in his 70s uh, who had a horrible and they would say unnecessary death uh, as a result of the jab. I don't know whether it was AstraZeneca in his case or Vaxisebri as they now call it, uh, but the whole point in much of that two and a bit hour video that you've put embedded in that page is that the patient information leaflet was not provided and that seems to be the same here. Uh, well, there's a lot of information in that uh, video clip. A good man down, Alex. Thank you for highlighting that. If people go to the front page of the UK column, they can see uh, that particular video interview. It's in two parts. The first hour and 20 minutes is to do with the incident itself. And the second part of the video is an in-depth analysis of what was done, uh, what uh, uh, paperwork was not completed, what procedures were not done properly. So I'd encourage people to go and have a look at that. Okay, well, um, we've got a number of people who've been researching in the background about what has been happening over the years around pandemic preparedness. And uh, what is coming out of this research is very interesting because it appears that over a number of years, uh, the government on one hand has been well aware that a pandemic is coming. When that pandemic arrived, it's apparently caught the whole country out. Uh, but if we look at the documents, uh, the researchers are saying if we read these documents, it's almost as this as if this was the plan to create a pandemic rather than proposals for dealing with a pandemic. So let's have a look at some of these documents. We're going to do this quite quickly in today's news, but we'll come back to it. So 2011, and we've got the UK Influenza Pandemic Preparedness Strategy. A uh, lot of detail in this uh, document, uh, but we just highlighted a few things. Immediately, you can see that they're interested in behavioural response, the levels of concern experienced by the population, 
um, positive reactions to good respiratory, uh, good respiratory and hand hygiene campaigns, the likely uptake of, of uh, antiviral uh, medicines and vaccinations and the way health services are accessed and used. So behavior comes straight into this. And down here, it says uncertainty about the severity of the new pandemic and any alarmist reporting in the media may drive large numbers of people to seek reassurance from health providers, placing strain upon primary and secondary care services. But didn't the uh, media in the last pandemic, Mike, uh, make sure that people were alarmed at what was happening? From, from December 2019 until uh, March or April 2020, the headlines were absolutely designed to encourage as much of that kind of concern as possible. Yes. Yeah, so strangely, in 2011, there was almost a warning against this. And then in 2020, we do the exact opposite. Uh, we've got another bit here. Proportionality, the, res uh, the response to a pandemic should be no more and no less than that necessary in relation to the known risks. Plans, therefore, need to be in place not only uh, for high level pandemics, but also for milder scenarios with the ability to adapt them as new evidence emerges. But of course, this has never happened in the latest pandemic. Uh, so the planning and the execution seem to be different. Uh, this one here, we've got taking account of this and the current Joint Committee on Vaccinations and Immunisation Advice for government's policy is that these vaccinations, if useful, uh, would be prioritised for the professional frontline workers and those of clinically at-risk groups. But we'll also highlight this. Uh, it's talking about something extremely interesting. The development of a new pandemic-specific vaccine can only begin once the new pandemic influenza viral strain has been identified and isolated. Arrangements have been put in place by the European Medicines Agency to enable manufacturers to conduct studies with prototype pandemic-specific vaccines and seek approval of uh, mock-up licenses in the new inter-pandemic period. These studies mean that the form of pandemic-specific vaccine will already have undergone de detailed clinical trials, including safety studies, which allows the new vaccine to be licensed and available for use as quickly as possible. So the opening statement, Mike, and you can help me out here, is that you can only develop the vaccine uh, as a new pandemic-specific vaccine, that can only begin once the new pandemic influenza viral strain has been identified. Uh, but then we're saying that you're allowing mock-ups. Uh, you're basically allowing a, a pandemic-specific vaccine uh, to be trialled to enable you to produce a vaccine in a shorter time when this pandemic emerges. These two statements appear to be in conflict. And if people are saying, oh, well, this is influenza, I think we can say, well, of course, then if we have COVID, which has completely flawed the scientists as a new strain, which has now wiped out influenza, how have we possibly managed to create these new vaccines in time? Mm. So very, very strange, the comments in the documents here. As a, a, as a contingency measure, the government is currently in discussion with manufacturers about the possibility of securing new advanced supply agreements for a pandemic-specific vaccine. Which is exactly what they did. Uh, exactly what they did. So crystal ball here. We don't know when a, when a pandemic can appear, but back in 2011, it seemed as if they knew exactly what was coming. 
if we're getting to public uh, maintaining public order, uh, gets fairly serious pretty quickly. In the event of civil disorder, the government rely on existing legislation and normal enforcement measures as far as possible, but may consider the need for additional powers. Well, they certainly got into that. And here's the media again, and you will see that it's talking about appropriate health-seeking behaviour and vaccine uptake. So 2011, they knew full well they were going to be using applied behavioural psychology. There was a lot talking about the number of bodies and deaths that were going to appear. So this was all about burial plans. So let's turn it round and say, well, where are the bodies in 2021? We don't know. Uh, more evidence here. This is applying behavioural insights to health. Uh, have a look at the forward for the detail. I know this has got quite a lot of small print on it. Have a look at this one. This is a, this is a paragraph inside this document. And uh, what's it saying? The importance of behaviour. There's been the assumption that central government can only change people's behaviour through rules and regulations. Our government will be a much smarter one, shunning the bureaucratic levers of the past and finding intelligent ways to encourage, support and enable people to make better choices for themselves. You're laughing, Mike, because, of course, what's in my head is this document is dated 2010, December 2010. This fits in with the Mindspace document. But what uh, behaviour were they encouraging? Fear, anxiety and stress. Alex. This is not actually the whole of the backstory. We and many other people who are in uh, the loop, as it were, or aware, started seeing around 2010, 2011 applied behavioural psychology. And of course, 2009 was the, um, many people remind, remember it as the Tamiflu scare, but the, the previous uh, inflated statistic uh, pseudo pandemic. But as far back as 2007, there was a precursor to exercise Cygnus. Uh, it's uh, exercise winter willow. And it would be particularly compelling to get uh, whistleblowers from the professions of coroners and forensic pathologists and registrars of births and deaths. Those three coroners and pathologists who, in many people's estimation, speak for the dead to protect the living. They have been sidelined. And it seems that the lessons that were learned in order to sideline the coroners and the forensic pathologists and the registrars of deaths were lessons learned from Exercise Winter Willow 2007. So anyone with a long institutional memory, we need that as the next iteration of whistleblowing to try to get deeper into what's been going on here. Uh, the bodies is a big area that we'll be getting into in more detail. At the extreme end, some people are concerned that there is an, uh, an undue incentive, ash cash, to incinerate the evidence by having more cremations and, uh, per, per year than burials year on year. That is something we're looking into responsibly with members of those professions, but we need more coroners, pathologists and registrars of births and deaths on site. Excellent, thank you for that, um, uh, Alex. Uh, of course, spot on. Let's just follow through and you've mentioned Cygnus, but we've got a Department of Health document here, scientific summary of pandemic influenza and its mitigation. So this is March 2011. Um, this is the sort of thing that it said, prepared by the pandemic influence and preparing this team with expert input and advice from the Scientific Pandemic Influenza Advisory Committee. This is a sort of spider's web of organisations uh, which we still haven't got to the bottom with, what their authority is, what their scientific capability is, we just don't know. 
but all of them seemingly able to plan on something coming in the future. Here's the behavioral interventions. Uh, this caught my eye because it says that basically key principles in communicating risk to the public includes being open and transparent. Well, I think we'd all agree with that. But if we drop down to this one, it suggests that, uh, <laughs> that there should be a framing of ambiguous messages negatively, e.g. one in a hundred will develop the disease, not 99 in a hundred will not. Mm. Isn't that rain raising stress and fear, Mike? It's, it also may be disingenuous. Disingenuous, yeah. Um, interesting diagram, which encouraged people to have a look at the report because this is supposedly showing predictions when the public do and do not take precautions or vaccines come in. I'll leave people to look at the detail in that themselves. But on to another one, and Alex has mentioned this, here's exercise Cygnus, a tier one command post exercise. So we're now in 2016, but note the redaction. This is a very interesting document. Here's more Public Health England, highly redacted. Uh, here's the introduction. And what have we got? An exercise designed to, accept, uh, to assess the UK's preparedness and response to pandemic influenza outbreak aimed at the local resilience forums, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but uh, you're going to notice straight away We've got an immediate redaction here of the person signing the document, who was the director for health protection and the medical director. Uh, we're going to ask who this person is because we've had some difficulty identifying this person from 2017. On into the document, the exercise style is a command post exercise. Alex, I'm just going to say using your name, the more I read this document, the more it seems to be quasi-military in its style and its language. And here you can see the Cobra meetings coming in together with SAGE. But as we go through heavy, heavy redactions, even when you get into their use of pseudo media, messaging the public was exercised using the Public Health England's exercises team's web-based platform called blank. Uh, here's more on the interaction with the pseudo media, but also talking about media tools, heavily redacted. And even when you get into the glossary, you notice right down at the bottom, let's bring that up on screen. They're talking about the web-based platform used to simulate news output. Uh, we're not to know the name of that platform, but I think we need to ask a question. Is that platform still being used to distort truth and to deceive the public as what's going on. And if you think you've seen the meat of this document, well, you haven't, let's have a look at acknowledgements because the public is simply not to be told any of the people who've helped compile this. This is truly shocking because surely if these people had put themselves as experts to protect the public from a pandemic and to support the health of the public, they would be very keen that their names appeared. So, Alex, I'll just give you 20 seconds on this because we're very tight for time today. Why should people be so frightened that the public see who they are and what they've been doing? Because they are the buffer between the tax-exempt foundations or the um, think tanks and the three-member uh, cycle the hamster wheel that we see, as Ivor Cummins recently put out in an analysis video, the three members of that cycle are media, 
politicians and public. We see this hamster wheel of madness increasingly gyrating. But as Ivor Cummings points out, and many others have as well, that's being fed into from the think tank world, from the foundation world, and the people you've identified, and yes, that document is cabinet office bordering on spookery in its language and acronyms and layouts. These people are the funnels between. They're the ones who give uh, concerns, TM, the appearance of being public political or media cons concerns when they in fact come from a private world that you and I haven't been members of. Yes. Okay, thank you for that. Well, just let's go to the disclaimer in that document. And it uh, said, and I found this fascinating, the exercise scenarios are entirely fictional and are intended for training and exercise purposes only. The exercise reports provided by Public Health England. So we are to believe that these completely fictional uh, scenarios just happen to come true three years later in amazing, with amazing accuracy. Yes. Just just incredible. Now, just before you move on, exercise Cygnus, uh, UK column was, I think, the, still the only person to really go into this in any great detail. If you, again, use the search box or, or go to the coronavirus section of the uh, website, and you will find an article from about a year ago now on exercise Cygnus goes into great depth. Uh, and uh, do share it because most people focus on exercise 201. Uh, but this was equally important, I think. Just very briefly, Alex. Sometimes the operation and exercise names are randomly generated or randomly assigned to an event planning. But in this case, I think it is interesting that Cygnus, of course, is the Latin for swan. Uh, people might want to look into what a black swan event is. And of course, this has been popularized by uh, Nicholas uh, Nassim Talib, I think his name is recently, um, with his books on anti-fragile. Uh, this is some, some quite key thinking about, uh, you know, shall we say, steering society in certain ways through catastrophes. Okay, thank you for that. Well, just about coming to the end of this little segment, but we've got to mention Spy M. Uh, now we're into November 2018, and uh, we've got more modelling now, scientific modelling on about the possibility of a pandemic outbreak. Here's the content. Encourage people to get this document and really read it and see what's being talked about. But here we are calmly talking about the progression of a pandemic and also starting off with what we know, there's lots of what we knows, what we don't know, what we should know but don't knows. But on the what we knows, a pandemic virus could first emerge anywhere in the world. Two of the three pandemics of the 20th century may have emerged in China. And in some of the other documents that we've seen where they talk about the emergence, the geographical place where a pandemic emerges from, that place has also been redacted from the public. And I will add that uh, COBRA, um, the uh, government's, um, this is essentially the Civil Contingencies Committee, uh, but of course COBRA uh, turning it into a snake sounds much more sinister, so the government very keen to do that. But the Institute for Government at least has got some criticism of the Co COBRA system as an organisation. Uh, it's pointing out that very often nobody knew who was going to chair it. So when Boris Johnson was ill, the Foreign Secretary, Dominic Rabb, chaired it at one point. Michael Gove has chaired it. But it goes on to say that basically SAGE members themselves described COBRA as devoid of decision making at the centre of government. Now, that's quite a statement from that body. And so we need to ask some questions. What was that organisation really doing? OK, if you like what the UK column does, you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. And uh, there are options to help us out there that would be very much appreciated. Also share 
material on the various platforms and, of course, from the UK Column website. Um, now, we have a quick advertisement uh, via David Scott uh, for an event that's taking place in, uh, in Glasgow uh, at the weekend. Indeed. I don't, I don't know a lot about this, so I think we need to watch the video, we Mike, do, is yes. the answer. <laughs> How you doing, folks? Firstly, thanks to David Scott and the team from UKCom for uh, giving us this opportunity to give the following message. We're going to have a wonderful event here, Saturday the 22nd, 12 o'clock. Come here, George Square, Glasgow. You're going to see a full range of speakers talking talk about topics such as the vaccinations, the impact of the lockdown on society, and the need, the need for a full inquiry into what's happened, and in particular, protecting the children in this time ahead. We look forward to seeing you, bring friends, bring family. It's going to be a fantastic event. We'll see you Saturday 22nd at 12 o'clock. Stoke Corners conspiracy theorists were past that stage now. And I'm just getting fed up with it. We're all getting fed up with it. <laughs> so, name your conspiracy theorist. Get your ass down here. You're needed for your wains. <laughs> okay, well, we understood that one. So, um, really good work, of course, being done north of the border with these meetings. And, of course, the more people come together, the more truth and information and research spread. So, I hope you will join in with that team. Now, we've had some nice uh, emails into the UK column and also some, some ones talking about the situation. But uh, this one said that uh, Paul had listened into Jeremy Vine and was appalled at the abuse levelled at UK citizens who decided not to have the vaccine. And apparently Mariana Spring from the BBC got a mention as well. Uh, we've also had this one from... A couple who said thank you very much to the UK column for restoring harmony at home uh, because now husband and wife can both see what's happening and that's calmed things down. So we're really delighted to have been doing a bit of counselling at home. So thank you for that. Uh, this was sent through to us, which I read <laughs> twice before I thought I can't believe this, but essentially the Drug Safety Research Unit is looking for people who've had their first AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccines to take part in an online study to monitor its safety. Oh, but, surely not. But surely it's been declared safe, Mike. So yes. we're going to have a safety study on a safe vaccine to check its safety in case it isn't safe. Well, there we are. Uh, this one is about people responding um, uh, to the whole things about vaccine and va vaccine passports. Uh, so a lady, Margaret, who says that basically they've been watching the UK column and what we're talking about is resonating them, uh, with them at home, and particularly as they've had a family member who had died of a reaction to a drug. That happened some time ago, but of course it's showing us that the pharmaceutical industry is not perfect. And I think we have got a little video clip to go with this one. Uh, several people sent in this. It's a clip of a symptom-free COVID testing bus that's actually been vandalized. And I have to say, we looked at this and, and our view is that damage of any public property or otherwise does not help the cause against vaccines. So we're going to show the clip, uh, but I would hope that this is not genuine anti-vaxxing people who've uh, done the damage. Have you smashed the bus up? Wow! What have you done that with? A hammer. A, a golf club. A golf club. 
So apparently three hoodies attacked the bus with a um, golfing iron, uh, but uh, we certainly wouldn't condone this behavior. And of course, it doesn't help the wider case for arguing and putting across the evidence that vaccines are not safe. Um, Alex, we're rapidly running out of time here, so we need to run through these. But uh, uh, State of Fear uh, is a new book by Neil Oliver, who's Scottish broadcaster. Uh, he isn't. He uh, he's just the the guy who wrote the uh, promoting blurb. It's Laura Dodsworth who wrote it. It's oh, Neil right. Oliver, actually. Yeah. Right. He's, he's on our side. Uh, David Scott and I bumped into him in an airport lounge once and had a good chat. But no, State of Fear by Laura Dodsworth. I'm going to do a full book review when I can find a moment uh, for the website because there are so many mineable quotes in that book. She's clearly a UK column viewer. I, I don't want to get, flatter us uh, that, uh, that where, where there's any possibility that she got all the stuff that she put in the in the book from other sources. But adding it all up, she's clearly um, got it from us, at least via us. Uh, she even manages to put in political philosophy, uh, Giorgio Agamemnon. Ben's State of Fear makes an appearance, one of these slender tomes of why we are misruled by people. But to explain why this is important as quickly as possible, think about the vignette of this morning where um, the uh, Minister for Apprenticeship and Skills, uh, Gillian Keegan, was cornered on talk radio by um, Julia Hartley Brewer and asked, can we go on holiday to France and Spain? No. But that's not law, is it, Minister? Well, no, it's guidance. Uh, so why are you telling us we can't? Oh, well, she doesn't quite say this, but Lee and Keegan basically says, well, because the people told me to. And this book goes into the detail of who those people are, Sage in particular. And there's a, in chapter 11 of the book is actually about counting the bodies. That's the chapter title of 11. For that chapter alone, if people were concerned by the operation, the exercise Cygnus segment just now, they should read that chapter because uh, like uh, I'm hearing, as I'm hearing from doctors uh, separately, uh, all the safeguards that were put in place to prevent a repeat of the Harold Shipman mass murder of patients by GPs uh, have been unrolled. And that has to do with the lessons learned from Cygnus, Cygnus chapter and verse uh, in chapter 11 of that book, uh, where um, Lucy Easthope, a, seri a senior lecturer in disaster recovery, uh, is interviewed at length and has uh, and is very frank about that. She says that the Coronavirus Act had been framed to take away all the problems we found in exercises like Cygnus. And as a result of that, nobody can count the bodies. So uh, Laura Dodsworth has done a brilliant job there. It seems that the Cabinet Office tried to smarm up to her when she was doing her research and persuade her to come over to the dark side, but she knew what was going on. Couple more things from me. Uh, viewers have been asking on our last posted YouTube video from a month ago now, where are we? Large numbers of, of well-meaning people, and not just dim-witted people, but intelligent people like this chap who just uh, didn't know where we'd gone, are still asking where we are. So UKColumn.org, please tell everyone you know who was interested in us and who should be interested in us that that's the place to go because uh, people are finding that difficult to keep up with sometimes. Uh, now, you, of course, Mike, have been doing yellow card data crunching and making that available on UKColumn.org in the yellow card dot ukcolumn.org subdomain. Uh, for the US data, there's a solemn moment about to transpire. Open VAERS, the, uh, the open access version of the VAERS uh, database, uh, which has been done by a similar Mike Robinson figure in America, is about to pass a million vaccine adverse events in the United States. Uh, and Natural Health News is reporting for the European Economic Area, which is the EU++, basically. Uh, that's the UDRA Vigilance website set up by the European Medicines agency has half a million adverse, well, 400,000 adverse vaccine reactions as of uh, a week or two ago uh, with over 10,000 dead. So these are the places to go uh, to find intelligent uh, treatments of the, the data coming out of the UK, EU and US adverse uh, reaction databases.
the register, which uh, is largely there to report on uh, breaches of data privacy and uh, other nefarious uses of data, is now reporting that the NHS is about to perform its biggest data grab in history. Uh, it's going to digitise a lot of records currently held in Britain by the general practices. A lot of European countries have already gone this step of digitisation. The official announcement that they're covering here says that uh, the data collected will include the diagnoses and symptoms data, but also physical, mental and sexual health, data on sex, ethnicity, sexual orientation and on who's treated patients. Uh, if you trust the NHS, that's not a problem. If you have your questions about the NHS, well, we're told how to opt out of that by uh, people who've got in touch with us. Uh, uh, so if you tap that again. Sorry, Alex, I'm just going to make the point. There is an exemption to the opt out uh, for anything related to COVID-19. So even if you opt out on the NHS website uh, in order to avoid having your data shared, there is an exemption for COVID-19 related issues. Uh, and so that effectively means the opt-out is worthless. This is why uh, outersight.org, uh, Clive Menzies or Mingis uh, reported, as we uh, covered a week ago, uh, that a call centre lady employed by the NHS couldn't, could directly update someone's medical records, having cold called him. Yes. But anyway, NHS Digital General Practice Data for Planning and Research, the slide on uh, screen at the moment, has the innocuously named other ways to make a choice about sharing your data. The URL is also there for those who want to copy it indirectly. The links will be under the broadcast. Uh, to the extent that you can opt out, that's the way to do it. Uh, Robbie Moore, uh, the uh, Conservative Member of Parliament for Keithley in West Yorkshire, uh, and this is not just open to his own constituents, has opened a website, robbiemoore.org.uk slash vaccine passports. He is canvassing the public on whether the government should introduce these travel permits or, or movement licenses, actually, for everyday life in Britain. So uh, I would say get onto his site and make your views known there. Uh, and then we've got uh, covidunmasked.net. The first of two quick deserving mentions of donation support, covid-unmasked.net. If you tap that, you will find that it's Brian Snellgrove who runs that. And he is a, a humble retired man who spends his whole working day uh, on this. He needs help to keep paying the bills. He's not getting much publicity. And there is a great amount of useful and vital information on there. So I would suggest people make a small donation there or even consider a recurring donation. Likewise, Craig Murray, who's still got a stay of sentence for his contempt of court or sentence, although he's been given the jail term provisionally, he's appealing for much needed defence funds. Very worthy man, although uh, he um, has gone the wrong way in thinking that uh, an SN, well, not he's not SNP anymore, but an independent Scotland will solve the problems uh, Scotland's currently in, which of course it won't. Uh, but he got um, a very emotional when he saw that one tran one donation to his uh, defence fund to uh, to appeal the sentence at the Supreme Court had come in from somebody who said, "Well, you are our generation's uh, Willie McRae." That's an SNP politician in the early 80s who it seems pretty clear was bumped off because he knew about the sexual uh, goings on uh, in Scotland in in those days. 40 years ago. So uh, uh, plus ça change, plus à la même chose. Uh, also to tout the uh, section fairly embedded down the uh, ukcarlton.org front page, stories we're watching. You've already missed these eight. Please get into the habit of checking this rolling ticker tape section every couple of days because I'm putting a lot of also ran stories of high value in there that we just don't have time to cover in the news. This is another way of doing justice to all the people who email us with useful leads. The ones that are currently up are on screen at the moment. Some of them are military. Some of them are to do with bailiffs. Uh, some of them are to do with um, COVID 
items and some of those are auto translated but keep watching that it's an integral part of this uh, of the uk column coverage and it's another reason why you should be going to ukcolumn.org and reading it carefully every day uh, thank you for that alex now uh, i want to come on to uh, our good friends our good friends can we call them that i don't think so but anyway our good friends at full fact uh, they have uh, decided to put up um, some job advertisements um, here we've got the first one policy and parliamentary relations manager um, this is all about policy and advocacy. The role is in London, although it could be flexible and remote. And you can apply for this job. That's one job, policy and parliamentary relations manager. They've also got a policy and government relations manager. They're independent, of course, Mike. Oh, they are. Oh, well, hold on. They are. They absolutely. Well, yes, they are. But here, look, uh, these two jobs are basically the same. It's only about who's on the receiving end that matters. So in the case of the parliamentary one, that's MPs. In the case of government, that's obviously the cabinet. So let's have a look at this particular role, full pact, an independent charity and team of campaigners and fact checkers is recruiting a policy and government relations manager to influence government legislation, regulation, policy and practice and the action of internet companies on addressing misinformation online. Now, of course, the fact that they're a team of campaigners means that they're not really, uh, they, they're not objective. They've got a, a position. We're going to show that again in one second. But what's this all about? Uh, you will be a key team member in our campaign on the forthcoming online safety bill, making sure we have the relationships with the government and other relevant organisations, as well as building policy propositions to influence, influence this key legislation. So they are going to run a campaign, uh, bearing in mind that they are they have positioned themselves as the independent fact checkers for everything uh, in the UK. They're going to run a campaign directly lobbying government for this role and the other role is directly lobbying MPs uh, in order to push their policy agenda and influence the online uh, uh, harms, the online safety bill. Now, if they're doing this, I'm going to say to everybody watching this program, uh, you need to be doing this as well. You need to be making your position absolutely clear on this because otherwise we're going to end up with some legislation, which is extremely unpleasant. Now, uh, let's just remind ourselves very briefly of full fact. Uh, this is Ben, who Brian didn't put on the program the last time we were discussing uh, full fact. And uh, well, Ben had pushed out an email a couple of weeks ago, if you remember, on the issue of the visit to Bath by Sir Keir Starmer when he was confronted, confronted by the pub landlord. Uh, and if you remember, we covered this, this email and just showed the disingenuousness of this organization uh, and how they were uh, presenting their their facts, the corrections to the allegations that the pub landlord was making. Uh, first, the pub landlord argued that the average age of a person who died from COVID is 82 years and three months, whereas the age, average age of death from other causes is 81 years. Data from the Office for National Statistics largely supports this, but this doesn't mean people that, uh, that people dying of COVID in their early 80s were necessarily going to die of, weren't necessarily going, or weren't necessarily going to die of something else. And he went on to say that data shows that if you reach the age of 82 in the UK, you're actually expected to live for several more years. He clearly doesn't want to recognize what the word average means. And this is a misleading and disingenuous statement. Uh, and therefore, full fact, demonstrating that they have an agenda to push here. They're not being objective. They're not being honest. Uh, and when the uh, facts go against their agenda, they're prepared to twist the facts to... Uh, pursue their policy agenda. Uh, his next argument, that's the pub landlord, was that the UK experienced a similar rate of death as recently as 2008 when lockdowns were not imposed. 
It's true that the last time the death rate was this high was in 2008, uh, but this largely reflects that we've made progress in healthcare and encouraging healthy behavior over the last 13 years. For example, we smoke less as a country now than we did 13 years ago. Again, a complete misrepresentation of the facts. When we look at age standardized mortality, we find that indeed 2020, uh, the previous worst year was 2008, but 2020 was only the ninth worst year since the turn of the century. And while we see that age standardized mortality has been falling actually since the Second World War, uh, as a result of the financial collapse in 2008, we've seen that that trend downwards has pretty much stalled and we've had a fairly horizontal trend since then. Uh, and although 2008 was a slight uptick, uptick, it doesn't take us to a position any worse than 2008. So again, misleading in the extreme. He went on to say it could be argued that the pandemic has seen these improvements in the mortality rate reversed. And this was despite uh, national restrictions without, the death without which the death toll would have been higher. Again, he provides no evidence to back this statement up. And whereas the UK column has consistently for a year now been providing evidence, which suggests that that is complete nonsense. And he went on to say people have the right to disagree, but, uh, but people deserve <laughs> all the facts in their proper context so that they can make up their own minds. Well, he certainly provided a context, but I would very much dispute that it was the yeah. proper context. Uh, and so full fact, absolutely demonstrating their position on this stuff. And if they are the people that are going to be lobbying parliament and they are the people that are going to be lobbying government, uh, then we're going to end up with something, a piece of legislation, which is not very pleasant. So just very briefly to run through this, this is about what they're describing as category one platforms, the big social media platforms and search engines. It's about services used in the UK. Uh, Ofcom is going to become the regulator. There's plenty of room in this for scope creep through the uh, Secretary of State for Digital Culture, Media and Sport issuing statutory instruments, secondary legislation. And of course, there'll be very little publicity unless the UK column provides it of what that statutory legislation, as those statutory instruments would be. It causes a duty of care to be imposed on the platforms. It's absolutely going to have a chilling effect on freedom of speech. Uh, the platforms will need to err on the side of caution with respect to taking material down uh, on the basis that not only uh, are there big fines for these platforms, but individual managers could be pros criminally prosecuted if they don't fulfill their obligations, uh, which are effectively going to be policed by Ofcom. Uh, freedom of expression will be absolutely ensured. There'll be no problem. You can say what you like, but you will not be heard because uh, you will not be able to share the material on search engines, via search engines or via the platforms. Uh, so that is the situation there. Um, and uh, democratic content will be protected. Content that the government per perceives as democratically important will be protected by the platforms and other content will be suppressed. Uh, journalistic content will be protected. Journalistic content means here from the big uh, uh, media organizations like the BBC, the Guardian, the Telegraph and so on. Uh, we may not need to, this is recognized news publishers. We may, may not need to worry though, because citizen journalist content will have the same protections, except no, it won't. Because what they mean, I believe, by citizen journalist content is the likes of Bellingcat approved citizen journalist content in the same way that uh, the, the mainstream press will be approved. Citizen journalists will have to be approved as well. This is extremely dangerous legislation. Uh, Alex, just very briefly, I'm interested in your thoughts on this, but this is something that people have got to get engaged with. 
and start lobbying their MPs now? Of course, um, the definitions of terms is where it's all at. Uh, in London, in American cities and elsewhere, we have already seen police since uh, COVID demonstrations started to be uh, outlawed and beaten up. Police saying to those who say they're there as a journalist, show us your press card, show us your credentials, log in, show us your password. Right. So it, it's already in the, um, the the dialogue of the trainers of the police uh, that journalists first have to have accreditation. It, it's by captured privatised outfits like Ofcom, which is the, the BBC's baby, as we know uh, from UK column coverage, not least. Um, this capture is also, as you'll see in extra time, something that's transferred to the, the idea of being a Russian stooge. So we'll be covering in extra time how uh, a member of the um, uh, Carlisle group, uh, the retired uh, US Rear Admiral Stavridis, is now claiming the same thing, that uh, if you are acting on behalf of the Russians and you're the owner of a British American or, or other Western uh, media outfit, uh, that private body will give the criminal charges for you to be indicted on for having broken some new law. So it's a complete legal capture. You've got to speak out against this. We certainly have. Um, I think we're going to end on these, Michael. OK, I, yes, I, yes. It, it just makes sense. Just to bring home, why do we need to make sure we've got a proper free and independent media? Well, we've got to counter what is now starting to happen through the controlled old uh, media and press. The BBC here, this was one of their most disgusting um, articles from James Gallagher, who said, well, he's had a vaccine and uh, he was going to tell people about the side effects. He was over the moon, apparently, to get vaccinated. I expect his mummy gave him a lollipop. He's covered the coronavirus pandemic, including the race to develop a vaccine. Um, so he said when it was his turn to roll up his sleeve at the GP surgery, it really felt like a moment. But the vaccine floored me. Uh, and he goes on to say that uh, he, had a, uh, he had AstraZeneca and by the evening, he spiralled rapidly downhill and could barely scrape himself off the bed for the next three days. The worst was the migraine and vomiting. But I also had aches, chills and exhaustion. But of course, he should think himself luckily that he, lucky that he wasn't paralysed from the waist down. He wasn't blind. He wasn't deaf for life. And actually, he did actually come to and he still had a life. But uh, this is the man who would crush anybody warning about vaccines. And this from Sarah Vine in the Daily Mail, truly disgusting. We can't let selfish idiots who don't want free COVID vaccines that scientists worked around the clock to develop hold us hostage. And she says that uh, basically, if you're speaking out about vaccines, uh, you are stupid, weapons grade stupid, in fact. So we need to put a picture of Sarah Vine on screen because she is not only stupid, but of course she is intensely arrogant and ignorant at the same time. Michael Gove's wife. Uh, Michael Gove's wife. Well, maybe maybe she, she picked the wrong man or he put the wrong woman. We can have a discussion about that. And uh, this is the independent. This is what we do about anti-vaxxers. No job, no entry, no NHS access. That last statement is effectively saying that if you dare to challenge vaccines, as far as the state is concerned, you can crawl away and die because you're not going to get any medical support. Alex. My and finally item comes from one of the court watchers who uh, send in reports to UK Column, and it concerns the vice president uh, and head of quality at Oxford Biomedica, uh, Helen O'Callaghan. 
at a hearing at High Wycombe Magistrates Court in Buckinghamshire on the 27th of April, the court heard how Helen Callaghan was caught on the speed camera driving at 57 miles per hour in her Porsche in the 30 mile per hour speed limit area. She pleaded guilty and was fined £660, ordered to pay £156 court costs and had six points docked from her licence. A note on the court document stated that she would not receive a driving ban because of the impact that this could have on production of the Vax Zevria vaccine, stating, quote, mitigating circumstances, colon, the bench finds exceptional hardship. It is a condition of Ms. O'Callaghan's employment to be driving, and in the current circumstances, if she were to be disqualified, it could adversely affect production of the AstraZeneca vaccine. Well, I should remain quiet on that because I'm speechless, really. But uh, thank you for bringing that in. I th think that brings us to yeah. the end of today's news. We've ended on a very serious note that, of course, if free speech goes, how do we warn what's really happening? So it's up to all of our viewers and listeners, whether in UK or worldwide, uh, to be championing free speech and to be fighting wherever you see the closure coming. And I'm sure that we can make a lot of progress on this. And lastly, I'd, another uh, advert for a good man down. So do have a look at the interview where we're talking about retired police sergeant who died after taking the vaccine and uh, look at the effect on his family and how the state has simply failed to do the job to protect the public. Uh, back in 10 minutes or so on the UK column live stream for Extra and otherwise back at 1pm as usual on Friday. Thanks for joining us. Bye bye. bye.